Hi, I'm Joanne Guarnieri Hagemeyer. I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. I'm delighted you've come to be with us this morning and you've come at a great time. We're going to jump right into chapter one of John's gospel and already it is so full. This first chapter is like the overture to a symphony because John is introducing themes that he's going to revisit all throughout his gospel. So we're going to tackle it in three parts. First, we're going to ask, who's John the Baptist? And then where is the Lamb of God? And finally, what is your quest? So let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us through the reading of this word, that you would deepen our understanding of your character and of your person, and that through your revelation, you would make us able to become more like you. We pray to the praise of your grace. Amen. When this gospel was written, John the Baptist still had a large and devoted following. In fact, today's passage begins at the height of the Baptist's popularity. But the Apostle John wanted to make an important point. The Baptist never sought celebrity. Instead, he knew his calling as God's prophet, announcing the coming of Messiah. So according to the other gospels, the Baptist had grown up strong in the spirit. At some point, the Baptist moved out into the wilderness and he dropped out of sight. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, the Baptist reappeared, now a grown man, rugged, dressed in camel's hair and leather and eating wild honey and locusts. And he was preaching what you and I would call hellfire and brimstone sermons. As an outward sign of the people's repentance, John was baptizing everyone in the River Jordan. Now, when I say everyone, I mean baptizing everybody alike. Greeks, Roman soldiers, even Jewish people. And no prophet or religious leader had ever done this before because people only converting to Judaism went through baptism. But John preached that nobody was right with God, not even God's own people, that every person had to make a fresh start. So this made him a very controversial figure, and people came by the thousands out into the wilderness to hear him preach and to get baptized because there was a great spiritual hunger during that time. People wanted to know God. It was also a very turbulent time politically, and the whole known world was expecting a Messiah, not just Jewish people. Everyone expected a great leader to emerge who would be bigger than life, maybe even supernatural. And because of John's enormous impact, the Sanhedrin, which was Judea's Council of Religious Authorities, sent a delegation to investigate John and his unorthodox baptism activity. Now keep that in mind. The temple authorities were far more concerned with the law and with their own authority. And the delegation had come with five burning questions. Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now, John was very like Elijah. He dressed like him. He appeared suddenly out of nowhere. He was rustic like Elijah. He had a similar lifestyle. He had a similar preaching style, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, so he's quite powerful. But he was not literally Elijah. The Baptist had come as the angel Gabriel had announced, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to prepare the way of the Lord. Later on, Jesus also said the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah to announce the suffering Messiah instead of the conquering Messiah King. One day, Jesus implied, Elijah himself will come and he'll announce Jesus' second coming as conquering King. But this was not that time. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
John was not the prophet Moses had spoken of. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. The Lord said, I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet, who shall speak to them everything that I command. Anyone who does not heed the words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will hold accountable. It's another thing to keep in mind throughout this gospel. Then they said to him, Well, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. See, John's call and his anointing and his mission did come from God because he was a prophet. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you're neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Imagine shivers going up and down thousands of people's spines, people craning around. Who is it? Who is it? Where is he? If John's anointing was to make straight the way of the Lord, then who was it standing among them? Except, have you ever wondered why none of that delegation asked John to point this person out? This more than anything revealed their real motives. Keep that in mind too, as we read through this gospel together. Knowing who we are in relationship to Jesus gives us courage. John could not be intimidated. And he didn't make himself to be more than he was. You and I can have that same confidence when we remember who we are in Christ. As the Apostle Paul would later write, Who can be against us if Jesus, the only one who has the right to judge, is for us? So where is the Lamb? The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. This actually is the answer to the delegation's fifth question. If only they'd stuck around, they would have heard it. The baptizing John was doing was part of God's plan to reveal Messiah. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now we know from the other Gospels that this event had happened about six weeks before. John had not been able to publicly identify Jesus until this moment, because immediately after Jesus' baptism, Jesus had gone into the desert for a 40-day ordeal of testing. But now, John confessed, I myself have seen and have testified, this is the Son of God. John declared who Jesus is in three very important ways. The first way was that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. As it was instituted in the wilderness, according to the book of Exodus, a person would bring a physically perfect yearling lamb or a yearling kid without any blemish or flaw or mark of any kind to the altar. And they would lay their hands on the yearling's head and that symbolically transferred their violation of the covenant and their offense toward God 
onto the yearling before it was sacrificed. Its death represented the person's own death, a gruesome reminder of the horror of sin. The effectiveness of these sacrifices was based entirely on what Messiah would one day do. God also provided for those gathered in one household through the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb died in the place of every firstborn Hebrew the night God judged all Egypt during the tenth plague. Every household which had literally painted the lamb's blood on their doorposts was spared that fateful night. And finally, God provided a way for one lamb's death to substitute for an entire nation's iniquity. That day was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The book of Hebrews explains Yom Kippur in light of Messiah. On this one sacred day, a perfect lamb was chosen for slaughter, and a perfect goat, a scapegoat, was chosen to take on all the sins of the nation and be driven into the desert, taking Israel's unrighteousness with it, forever removed from the people. As the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus had to be without any flaw, inwardly and outwardly, completely without any of the defects or transgressions or imperfections, violations or corruption of any kind. For he would once and for all deal with the judgment of the world's sin. So that's the first way. The second way John said Jesus was the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means immerse or wash. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a total saturation in God that changes us from mortal to immortal. A new life is created within us by the Holy Spirit, and that new life is eternal. The third way, and the greatest proclamation of all, John said Jesus was none other than the very Son of God. Jesus, God the Son, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John's audience would have known the Holy Spirit from the Hebrew Scriptures as God's agent of creation, hovering over the void at the beginning of time and bringing the world into being at God's word also equipping the artisans to make the ark, just as the Holy Spirit equipped kings to rule and inspired prophets to speak God's words. In the Psalms, as providing what believers needed to live a moral life, and speaking often of a coming Messiah. And finally, the Holy Spirit was as God, God's character, God's values, God's anointing, God's power, as God they knew the Spirit would come upon those with a calling from God, but they also knew that the Spirit could depart, as the Spirit had departed King Saul. But they had no idea that through Jesus, the Lord was going to pour out God's Spirit on everyone, every person who comes in faith, and that God's Spirit would live within that person, every believer forever, never to be taken back, permanently secure in God's grace. John is going to talk about that in the very next chapter. And that brings us to Jesus' question, actually. What is your quest? The next day, John the Baptist began sending his disciples to Jesus, beginning with Andrew and John. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said, What are you looking for? 
These are the very first words Jesus speaks in John's Gospel, very possibly the first words Jesus spoke as he began his public ministry. In Greek, ti zeite, which literally means, what are you seeking? It was a well-known Hebraism which spoke to the heart. What are you searching for in life? What were the desires of their hearts, particularly in terms of worship and of God? What were they looking for spiritually in Jesus? And it's important to listen for this question because it's going to show up again in some unexpected ways throughout this gospel. They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? What were they searching for? They were seeking Messiah. What did they desire from Jesus? They wanted to know him to be his students, to learn of God through him. This would have been the expected answer, to say, Rabbi, take me as your disciple. He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Did you notice that time? All throughout this gospel, John left specific, verifiable details that are signature to an eyewitness. Now, at some point, Andrew realized he had to go get his brother Simon, who was also spiritually minded, although it seems he had himself not chosen to become a disciple of a rabbi. And that's probably because Simon had already married and was supporting his wife and a little son and his mother-in-law. We have found the Messiah, Andrew told his brother, which is translated Christ. Simon evidently believed Andrew implicitly. He lost no time and he gave no thought to dropping everything in that moment in order to hurry back to Jesus with his brother. He brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him. Now that word look means an intent observation that discerns clearly. That word's going to show up a lot too in this gospel. At the very end of this book, chapter 21, Peter will remember what this felt like as Jesus looked at him intently reading his heart. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be named Cephas, which is translated Peter. Peter, a rock, solid, dependable, and true. In the years to come, Peter would surely look back on this moment again and again, recalling Jesus' prophetic voice. The next day, Jesus decided to go up to Galilee, where all these men had their fishing businesses. And presumably, John had brought in his brother James by this point, too, and Jesus sought out Philip. Philip was also from Bethsaida, a small fishing village, so probably they all knew each other. And Philip had the same response as Andrew and John. He went to go find his good friend Nathaniel, who in the other Gospels was called the son of Ptolemy, or in English, Bar-Tholomew. He and Philip were inseparable friends. They were always grouped together on later missionary expeditions. And it seems Nathaniel and Philip were also students of the scriptures because Philip told him about finding the one Moses and the prophets had written about. But when Philip said Jesus was from Nazareth, right away, Nathaniel was a skeptic. Nazareth was considered only like maybe a grade above Samaria, full of Gentiles and the worship of pagan deities. And it was just a mixed polyglot of a bunch of cultures. And Philip didn't argue. I imagine he had already known how that news was going to land, but he was counting on Nathaniel's curiosity and his trust in their friendship. With beautiful simplicity and in a poetic echo of Jesus' own words to Andrew and John, Philip gently 
and provocatively invited his beloved and learned friend to just come and see. And to Nathanael's credit, he did. Jesus perceived Nathanael coming towards him and said concerning him, Behold, a true Israelite, in him there is no deceit. The word here in Greek, Aiden, does not just mean he saw. It means something deeper, a kind of seeing that understands a thing, a discernment and perception are involved, even to experiencing something with more than one's eyes. So as Nathanael approached Jesus, the Lamb of God looked steadily into Nathanael's soul. And what Jesus discerned was Nathanael's heart and spirit, saying, here's the genuine article, the real deal, an authentic Israelite. That must have been quite humbling to Nathanael, because he had kind of implied Jesus was not genuine, simply because he was from Nazareth. Then Jesus said to him, in him is no deceit or no guile. Also perceiving Nathanael was honest and upfront. He had integrity. And this must have made Nathanael feel even more uncomfortable because how could Jesus understand him like that? How did Jesus come to learn about his character? Well, Jesus told him, before Philip called out to you, I perceived you beneath the fig tree. There's that word again, Iden, I saw, but really, I discerned your spirit and character. I experienced who you really are. And that's all it took. What Nathaniel said next is really remarkable. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. From construction worker in Nazareth to Messiah to son of God and true king of Israel. How did a skeptic turn into a believer just like that? What could possibly have happened in Nathaniel's mind and heart. Well, the fig tree was the common place for prayer, especially for young rabbinic students. And in Nathaniel's day, the rabbis taught that every time one prayed, they were to pray for the coming of the Messiah. So what was Nathaniel doing when Philip came to find him? Yes, as a rabbinic student, a man who seriously studied the scriptures, who had placed himself beneath the fig tree to pray, had begun to pray for the Messiah when he heard his beloved friend call out to him, We have found Messiah. Nathaniel put two and two together in his mind. Only Messiah would have seen him praying for Messiah. Nathaniel's response of faith must have pleased Jesus because he gave further revelation, and we're going to see that too throughout John's Gospel. When people responded to Jesus in believing faith, he opened their eyes to even deeper insight. Truly, truly, I say to you all, you will perceive heaven having been opened and the messengers of God going up and coming down upon the Son of Humanity. This is the first time the term son of humanity comes up, and it's a phrase rich with substance, and we'll take a closer look at it um, as we get deeper into this gospel. The traditional way to translate this phrase from the Greek, huian tu anthropou, is son of man, because man connoted humankind for quite a few centuries in the English language. But now more and more people are making the intentional effort to use more accurate language when translating. And in this case, anthropos in Greek is the neutral term denoting person or human or even humankind. Like, for instance, anthropology, that's the study of people. And Greek uses aner or andros if they want to talk about a man specifically. So the term Jesus used is more accurately rendered 
son of human or humanity. So that's the term I personally am going to be using as I do teaching. I'm confident these men were tracking right along with Jesus and knew he was talking about the patriarch Jacob's dream. You see, in the distant past, Jacob, who had successfully swindled his slightly elder brother out of his birthright and his inheritance, was now fleeing for his life with only the clothes he had on, running away from his brother Esau. Finally exhausted, he found a place to shelter, somewhat, and he chose a rock to lay his head on, and he fell asleep alone in the wilderness. But during the night, Jacob had a vivid dream with the same evocative power of a vision, witnessing angels going up and down from earth to God. From this, Jacob knew that God was going to be with him. How many people must have read about Jacob's dream over the centuries, marveling at the angels and at the great throne of God and at heaven and earth connected, and never even thought about the significance of that stairway. The stairway to heaven is Jesus, son of God and son of humanity, connecting God with people. John has now laid it all out, the themes in this overture. Jesus is the Messiah the Lamb of God, who will die for the sins of the world, and also God the Son, who will reveal God and baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the reader of hearts and discerner of souls. He knows you and me better than we even know ourselves. Jesus is the King of Israel, the true anointed one, the King of all kings, reigning for eternity. Yet he is also this humble stairway, hidden in plain sight, connecting lowly earth with lofty heaven. Oh God, we thank you for how John wrote this gospel, for your inspiration, for the discernment that you gave him. We ask that you would help us discern you too in our everyday lives, that we would recognize your connection of our lives to you, that you would increase our courage and confidence in you because with you for us, who could possibly be against us? We pray it to the praise of your grace. Amen.